Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Unfortunately, there are very few photos of Tamika Rice. One family photo shows a beautiful little girl with her father's facial features and her mother's smile. She has a smile so big that you would think the whole world would know this 11-year-old. Who could miss seeing her? Her hair is carefully curled. Her eyebrows give her expression. Her eyes shine with life and love. And she holds her baby brother, William Rice III, on her lap, making sure he doesn't slip off. He looks like he really doesn't want to be in this photo, but the rest of the family smiles for the camera. They look beautiful. Happy parents of wonderful children with Tamika right in the center, stealing the show. Tamika was described by many as a well-behaved, quiet child. She did well in school. She did what she was told. And for that, her teachers didn't pay much attention to her. After her death, one teacher said that she had to think hard to figure out who Tamika was. She had to go back and look at Tamika's file to remember who she was. It feels like a loss to know that a beautiful child, a smart, mannerly, good kid, went unnoticed until she was murdered. It feels sad and empty. I believe that Tamika deserved better from her community. The owner of the market where Jacqueline, Tamika's mother, cashed her welfare check would say that he saw Tamika almost daily. She would come in and get chips and pop from the store. The neighbors said that the Rices had only been in the neighborhood for about a year. The family kept to themselves and were quiet. Neighbors would see Tamika out playing in the yard, but rarely saw any of the other family members. You see, the Rice family had fallen on hard times shortly before the murders, but they seemed to be doing okay. William had lost his job and the family had to move into a small apartment. Tamika had to change schools and they were getting by on the little money provided by welfare. It was a rough patch, but they were sure to make it through. They just needed some luck and some time. The evening of March 11th began with a card game at the Rice home. They had invited Jesse Mack to join them in playing cards. The Rices didn't know that Jesse Mack had escaped from a halfway house. He was transitioning from prison after being convicted of manslaughter. You see, he drowned a man during a robbery. And it's unclear how the Rice family came to know Mac. All we have is Mac's version of what happened that night. The adults were having a good time playing cards, having a few drinks, when Mac asked William Jr., that's the dad, to come with him on an errand. Maybe he wanted to pick up another bottle. Maybe he had another excuse, but whatever he said, William left with Mac. Mac ended up driving William to a remote part of the city where they both got out of Mac's vehicle, and Mac shot William once. William called out, Jesse, and Mac proceeded to shoot him several more times in the body and the head. A man living nearby heard two men yelling, and he heard gunshots, so he placed a call to the police. When officers responded, William Rice Jr. was found lying in the street. He'd been shot in the head and chest multiple times. After shooting William, 
Mac went back to the house and got Jacqueline. He told her that William had sent for her and Jesse was supposed to take her to where he was. Instead, Mac took her to a different location and told her to get out of the car. Jacqueline became hysterical and said she wasn't getting out of the vehicle. Mac had only one bullet left in the gun, so he shot Jacqueline in the side and pushed her out of the car. A neighbor would call police when he found Jacqueline lying partly in his yard and partly in the street. She would later die in the hospital of a single gunshot wound to the chest. Mac returned to the Rice apartment and woke the sleeping Tamika. He took her and left her little brother in the house asleep. This string of violence began at about 3 a.m. on March 12, 1988, when all the members of the Rice family were murdered, except for young William. Later in the day on March 12th, Mac dialed his friend's pager. When Jerome Calvin answered the call, Mac told him that he needed to talk to him. It was urgent. He told Calvin to come to his place. He had something to show him. When Calvin arrived, Mac explained that he had to, quote, take several people out. He said that he had to kill a man, his wife, and a little girl. He had to kill the little girl because she could identify him. Mac gave Calvin the details of the night before. Calvin asked Mac why he kept going back to the house. Mac finally told Calvin that he, quote, had to have that little girl. He admitted that he killed William and Jacqueline so that he could kidnap and sexually assault Tamika. Calvin wanted no part of it. He turned to leave, and Mac stopped him by saying, come here, I want to show you something. The men went to the basement where Calvin saw a little girl sitting quietly on a couch. She was in her nightgown. She had pink curlers in her hair. Calvin was looking at Tamika Rice. Calvin would later say that she looked like she was fine, so he went home. Calvin did nothing to help Tamika Rice. He didn't call anyone. He didn't do anything. He left that child with a confessed killer. The following day, after Tamika's body was found, Calvin was watching the news. The reporter told of a little girl who was found dead in the street. Calvin remembered the child he saw in Jesse Mack's basement. He called police and told them about the conversation he had with Jesse Mack and the little girl he saw in his basement. Tamika's body was found by a man who was walking home. She was in the street, wrapped in a bedspread. The little pink curlers were still in her hair. Her beautiful, wide smile would never grace the world again. When Tamika was found, she was nude. She had a nylon stuffed in her mouth. It was held there with tape. Tamika Rice, who was 11 years old, had been sexually assaulted and then strangled with a dog leash. Detroit police used laser technology to analyze hair, fiber, and semen samples that were found on her body. The animal hairs matched hairs that were found on a dog leash in Mac's home. The semen samples matched samples taken from a condom that was also found in Mac's home. On March 14th, Jesse Mack, who, in my opinion, should have already been in custody, fled the state of Michigan with a woman who was known to be involved with. A warrant was issued for his arrest on the 16th, and an FBI agent in Tennessee received the message that both federal and state warrants had been issued for Mac's arrest. The message gave a possible location where Mac could be hiding, and the FBI went to that location. Jesse Mack was arrested, searched, and transported to the Memphis Federal Building. It looked like the authorities finally had their guy. Mack was being held for the murders of William, Jacqueline, and Tamika Rice. 
He was extradited to Michigan to stand trial for two counts of second-degree murder, four counts of first-degree murder, and one count of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. Mack was arraigned on March 19th, the same day that the funerals for William Jr., Jacqueline, and Tamika were held. A thousand people attended the funeral that was held at Greater St. Mark Missionary Baptist Church. Three caskets were displayed at the front of the church with a wreath on each one. Burnett Smith, who was the principal at Quirtus Elementary School, spoke at the funeral. I came here to represent 30 grieving boys and girls in room 205, grade 4. I come here to represent every child who does not understand that empty desk or man's inhumanity to man. I want you to know that Tamika was important. Reverend Mark Clark spoke about the breakdown of morals in Detroit. What else can explain why we lose so much that is good? And listeners, we'll be right back. At his arraignment, Mac denied the murders. He told Magistrate J. Wendell Murphy that police had coerced a confession from him at gunpoint, then threatened him with bodily harm. If he remarked on the overwhelming physical evidence that connected him to the body of a murdered child, it was not covered in print. Mack was appointed a public defender a few days after he was extradited. His lawyer immediately filed a motion to suppress crime scene and autopsy photos. He also filed a motion to suppress Mack's confession. Counsel asked that the court reduce the premeditated murder counts to manslaughter, and finally, he filed a motion to reduce the charges to conform to the proofs at the preliminary examination. The motions were argued on May 23rd. The hearing began with Mac taking issue with his counsel. Mac claimed that his lawyer had failed to ask for a change of venue. He also complained that his lawyer had not filed other things that he'd requested. Mac told the court that his lawyer had done nothing, quote, except come here and pretend he my attorney. The court explained that a change of venue wouldn't be filed until after jury selection had begun, but Mac continued to complain that his lawyer was not representing him to his satisfaction and moved for a finding of ineffective assistance of counsel. So the court gave him the choice of retaining his counsel or representing himself. Mac chose to represent himself. The court allowed this, but ordered the appointed counsel to remain at the defense table throughout the proceedings so he could guide Mac through the legal system. Mac was given the opportunity to speak with two other defense attorneys, but he refused. So not only did Mac have access to three lawyers, but the judge helped guide him through several steps in the legal process as well. Jury selection, cross-examination, objections. He was guided through all of it. Now, the press had a field day with us. Mac would later be accused by the prosecution of making this decision so he could later use it to appeal his case. The media speculated that he would succeed with his appeals. Early in the trial, the prosecutor offered Mac a mistrial so he could find new counsel, but Mac refused. He demanded a new lawyer, but continued to represent himself in the case. His original public defender, Curtis Williams, was still seated at the table to help Mac with his defense, but Mac refused to acknowledge that Williams was his representation. Williams and assistant prosecutor Robert Pearl both suggested that Mac accept the mistrial so he could be represented by a different lawyer. 
Pearl thought that Mac's actions were calculated to inject legal errors into the case. All of this is a fraud on the system, Pearl said. He wants to play games with the system and build in appellate parachutes. During trial, Mac's aunt, Roberta Wilson, testified that Mac had told her that he had shot William Jr. and Jacqueline and that he had taken Tamika. Wilson said that she told Mac, please don't hurt that little girl. And he replied with, she's out of the box. She's either hurt or gone. Wilson had been invited to play cards with the Rices that night, but had turned down the offer. It was a decision that she regretted. Mac would later say he was totally shocked that his aunt testified against him. He said he didn't know what she was talking about. He denied that he had killed the Rice family. His live-in companion testified that the bedspread that Tamika's body was wrapped in was an old sofa cover from her basement. The hairs found on Tamika's body were from a dog that police had seen at the house where Mac was living with this woman. When Jerome Calvin testified about seeing Tamika in the basement of the house, Mac accused him of killing the family. Isn't it true that you claim to be the devil? Mac asked in court. He asked Calvin if it was true that he poured transmission fluid over a car seat to mask the bloodstains. Of course, it was Mac who had poured the transmission fluid over the car seats. Calvin also testified that he had taken photographs of the 12-year-old girl for Mac, but Mac told him that the girl was 19. Mac also had a photo album with pornographic pictures of a 12-year-old girl in sadomasochistic costumes and in bondage and candid snapshots of young girls that were not allowed into court as evidence. Pearl argued that the photo album should be entered into evidence because Mac claimed that he had no interest in young girls. Eventually, the photo album was allowed into evidence. By June, Mac had given up on defending himself in court. I can't keep up with what's going on here, Mac told Judge Clarice Jobes. He turned the case over to his defense attorney, Curtis Williams. It was too little, too late for Mac, though. The jury was to start deliberating the following Tuesday. The trial was essentially over. On June 15, 1988, Jesse James Mack was sentenced to life in prison without parole on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder in the deaths of William, Jacqueline, and Tamika. He was also convicted of four counts of criminal sexual conduct with a child for the assault on Tamika. And listeners, if you're wondering why there was no death penalty brought up here, Michigan does not have the death penalty. The state abolished it back in the 1840s. As happens in so many cases, news coverage seemed to lose the family in the exploits of Jesse James Mack at trial and during his appeal process. The prosecutors were correct in their assumption that Mack was putting on a huge show in order to appeal his case later. Of course, every person who is sentenced to prison has the right to appeal, so Mack was exercising his right under law. It's up to the Court of Appeals to accept or reject that appeal. Mack's appeal included that the court abused its discretion in denying his request for new counsel. He claimed that the court's failure to replace his counsel forced him to represent himself. While Mack was indigent and he did have a right to an attorney, but he didn't have the right to the attorney of his choice. He could not provide good cause to replace his attorney, so it's up to the court to decide whether there are grounds to replace an attorney for someone being represented by the state. 
He also claimed that the state erred when it allowed him to represent himself. Mack argued that he did not knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waive his right to representation. Mack had insisted that he could represent himself. The court attempted to warn him against this choice several times. They even offered him a mistrial, but Mack insisted that he could make it through the trial without representation. His original public defender was also ordered to stay with him at the table to guide him through the trial. And the judge in this case also gave him guidance. As part of his appeal, he claimed that the police coerced his confession with threats of violence. The Court of Appeals found no evidence that Mack had been coerced in any way. He also appealed on the grounds that in closing arguments, the prosecution focused on the victims and not the evidence and said that the prosecutor referred to Mack as the devil. This claim was also denied since Mack's attorney didn't object to anything that was said in closing arguments at trial. It was denied because, quote, any statements or arguments of the attorneys are not evidence. Though Mack's attorney didn't object to anything that was said in closing arguments, the judge did direct the jury to disregard certain statements in the prosecution's closing argument. Mack went on in his appeal to claim that his Sixth Amendment right to legal counsel was violated because he was not allowed access to the law library so he could properly form a defense on his own. He had a lawyer. He just refused to defer to counsel until it was too late. Clearly, Mack had made a mockery of the system in order to appeal his case later, but all of his appeals were denied. Jesse James Mack will remain incarcerated for the rest of his life, and that's the best place for him. He doesn't deserve to breathe free air again. But he wasn't the only one who was guilty. Roberta Wilson and Jerome Calvin were also guilty. They couldn't be charged with anything, but these were the people who knew that Mac had taken Tamika. Calvin saw Tamika sitting quietly on a couch in her nightgown. He knew she didn't belong there. He had to have some idea that Mac would do something bad to her. He had admitted to killing her parents. Mac had also told Calvin he had taken her because he wanted her. She was 11 years old. After Mac told Wilson the story of killing William and Jacqueline, she should have done something more than telling him not to hurt Tamika. Neither one of them called police. Neither one of them did anything to save that little girl. Though they can't be held accountable for Tamika's death, in my opinion, they are guilty of allowing her murder. The Rices were a loving, stable family. William and Jacqueline were good parents whose only goal was to take care of their children. They didn't deserve to be murdered. Tamika was a bright, amazing little girl. I'm sure that smile of hers won the hearts of everyone who was blessed to see it. Tamika may have been forgotten by her teachers. She might have been ignored by the people who could have saved her. But she will always be remembered by those who knew her. Her friends and her family remember her, and they love her to this day. Tamika was important. This case was a listener request, and I appreciate the suggestion. And while this was an incredibly hard case to cover, we need to remember Tamika. We should remember the Rice family and what happened to them many years ago. And to wrap up this episode, in 1992, Jesse Mack was transferred to an unnamed prison in the U.S. prison system. This transfer happened either so he could receive mental health treatment or for his own protection as a child killer. As of this writing, 
Mac is 70 years old, and he will die in prison. This month, I'm releasing extra episodes to celebrate the end of a very long year. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for 2023 and seeing where the new year takes us. As always, I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.